1: Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover
0: what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay, And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to say a very big thank you to everyone who spo- sponsors and supports this podcast. That's all of you in uh, Patreon and all of our academates. We are so grateful for all of you so that we can keep bringing the show to you every single episode. And mm. we'd like to also thank today's Sean brown for our new patron welcome welcome thank you very much sir thank you very much and if you if you'd like to join the crew you can just pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and find out all about the incredible goodies you can get as a patron and also the academy as well mr stay how are you sir i'm really good i'm really
1: good thank you very much busy Busy week, lots of writing to be done and such. Lots of academy stuff. Just had one of the, one of our post podcast chats where we talk about the podcast from the week before. So we're all online talking about Sarah Denzel, which was really good fun. Uh, and some of which, funny enough, ties in a little bit to what we might be talking about with our special guest this week. So that was um, so that'll be fun. Uh, but yeah, and and I was surprised someone completely out of the blue uh, said to me today, um, "Did you know Robot Overlords is on Netflix in the UK?" I was like, ooh, no, let <laughs> sort
0: of me know. <laughs> you'd think of the writer of the screenplay in the book, you'd be getting a kind of a direct Twitter feed of these kind of things, but that's I, not
1: how it works, is it? <laughs> I had the director around today; he didn't have a clue either. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're the last. It, it used to be on Amazon Prime, now it's on Netflix in the UK, and I've had friends from America say, "Well, how do I watch it in the states?" Because it used to be on Netflix in the states, and now it's not. But it might be on Pro- I don't know. So, it's well, it's on. it's
0: on Amazon Prime in Canada, and and. For everyone out there who's ever wanted, to, you know, <laughs> has dreamed of getting um a book made into a movie or a series on Amazon Prime or I mean, take your pick. There's Apple 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 TV now is going bonkers. They've got loads of new stuff coming out. You've got Netflix, Hulu. you've got all these incredible What how does it work, Mark? Like like give us the lowdown. It's like it's to do with licensing, isn't it? Things come in and out and everyone's negotiating and they bring in they bring back old catalogue and all that kind of malarkey,
1: How's how's it work? uh, uh, You know, I, again, I'm the writer. I don't, I I can't speak for for certain, but I know that certainly the studios tend to license things in batches. So, you know, you get a bundle, I think, uh, and you license it for so long and then the license lasts a few years and then it reverts back and then you try and license it to someone else. But I think the bundling thing happens because, you know, you'll get, The big movie that everyone wants, they'll pay for that. And and with that, you get all the other films that no one's heard of. Hello.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I I think what it is as well is that what I'm seeing is this kind of evolution of turnover to keep things fresh rather than just having one massive growing catalogue. They want to keep announcing what's coming back. There's actually websites dedicated to this now, where you can see what's coming back or or whose group. You know, Netflix might grab something from Amazon Prime and vice versa. So it's like a, a complete mix. mean but that that it's not so much an illusion, but the idea that there's there's constant turnover means that you can go and say, Oh, look, this old movie's come back, or this this you know movie that's come, swept over places. And that I think is where they keep the subscriber base, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I like you. I I follow a few of those accounts on Twitter that says, you know, um, either new on Netflix or they warn you, you've only got a week. I don't know how they know, but they'll say things like you've only got a week left to watch this this film or whatever. And here's the thing about Netflix. There aren't that many films on there. You know, there aren't that many on there, uh, particularly anything sort of pre two thousand. You're talking
0: UK though, aren't you? That's true. Because I don't know if you know this, but in and we're the same in Canada. We have a similar depth of uh, catalog or or shallow catalog, I should say. In the states, apparently, their catalog is somewhere between five to ten times. Don't quote me on this, but when I last looked, like a a year ago or so, it was about five to ten times the size of Canada. And it's a big bear bug here because everyone's paying the same amount per month, but they're getting like about a tenth of the catalogue.
1: Yeah. Well, but even so in the States, I hear friends complaining. There's not a lot of old stuff. If you want a movie pre 1990, it's there's not a lot on there. So, you know, over here in the UK, we have a TV channel called Talking Pictures TV, which has been showing the most Wonderful obscure movies that I've been waiting to watch for ages. Actually, they've started rerunning the old Children's Film Foundation movies, which I don't know if you oh, remember, Mister yeah, D. I remember those. They they all run for like an hour and ten minutes. And they have the most wonderful outlandish plot lines done on a budget of approximately fourteen shillings and sixpence, (laughs) and uh, and they 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 look like homemade movie but movies, but they're wonderful. They just got such an imagination. Um, So yeah, I've been I've been dipping into those as well, which is interesting because Robot Overlords was compared to was called a big budget children's film foundation movie, which. I don't take as a criticism. It's like, no. yeah, definitely. Heart yeah. my sleeve.
0: That's what it's aimed at. <laughs> and how does all this relate to to writers, our listeners will be thinking? But if you're, you know, we, we always think about writing the book, getting the book out there, and it's always about the book. But writing is one of those incredible um, professions where it doesn't just exist within its own format. It, it can become something else. I mean, how many, how many professions are there out there? I mean, I think about music, for example. Yes, you know, I can write a piece of music and I can put it on an album. That's one format. That piece of music can be used on uh, a BBC show. Like it's mm-hmm. been like on Top Gear and, and, and Country File and the one <laughs> show I've had music on. Crazy. Um, but it, it's still the music, right? It's still the same thing that I created. But the thing that I love about writing is you create this thing called a book and it can become... You know, something visual, it can it can morph into a completely different art form. And I think that's one of the most exciting things. So when people think about, you know, what happens when you become an author full time and, you, you know, that's where your focus is. The fact that you have got those opportunities, that things can happen even without you having to do anything. I mean, literally signing a contract, say, yeah, you could make this into a film. Um, understanding how it works, understanding especially how Netflix, Amazon Prime, et cetera, that's all going to be part of your income down the road. Um, so it's very, very important to and why we're so kind of fascinated, I think, by that whole part of the, that writing end of things, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it's kind of um, it's almost like free money.
0: You, know, when you create
1: something. It's, uh, you know, it becomes this other thing, uh, which is the, the writer's dream, really, making money without doing any work. Any work.
0: But, <laughs> but actually, you know what, though? It's payback for all the work that you've done. Yes, right? all it's the unpaid of, work, yes. The hours, the years of writing, of learning the craft, of them writing the book, I always see it as a dividend payment um, mm. that starts to make up for the number of hours that you put in the blood, sweat, and tears of unpaid writing that everyone does. It. You know, I'm doing a right? lot of, I mean, I'm, that, doing, I'm doing a lot of that at the moment. An it, awful exactly. lot. Exactly, <laughs> it never ends. It's a lot of it's speculative, and um, so it is the big reward at the end of the tunnel, which I think is, and it's always that kind of big, big kind of. I mean, people think of it as a lottery ticket, but you've got to dream about this stuff because I think that's you know the reality of what can happen.
1: I mean, I'm I'm doing uh, John and I are writing. Uh, we've got about three projects. Maybe four projects on 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 different hobs on the the on the oven at the moment. You know, some on the mm. back burner, some are boiling and sizzling mm. right now. And the reason is, we know that when our film comes out early next year, uh, we will have what is known as heat—a little bit of heat—and there'll be a short period of time where we get meetings and people go, well, "What have you got?" And what the mistake, yeah. yeah, and the mistake I made last time was what I had was completely different to what had just been released not making that mistake again. I'm going to give them so, more of the same, but so different. This, is, <laughs> this
0: is like taking our whole cons- conversation of concepts mm. around the importance of series writing in books. Mm. And you're applying that to screenplays and projects. Would you say? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you've, I mean, we've, you know, there's a sequel idea, but the sequel entirely depends on the box office of yeah. that. And there's a lot of nervousness around theatrical releases. You know, are people still going to want, particularly post winter? COVID might come back, make a horrible comeback. Will people be happy going into cinemas? That sort of thing. So there's a kind of we're not banking on you know a big blockbuster hit. But what mm-hmm. we are going because it's a horror movie, we're going okay. Let's have some more horror movies. Let's have more of the same but different. Let's let's we've proven we can do this and do it well. Let's offer them some more. So you know, there's um so we are working our little buns off getting scripts into the best shape they can possibly be preparing pitches uh to make them as as slick as they can you know video pitches and stuff like that um so that when the time comes we've got a spread bet essentially we're not hinging it all on one thing we've got four or five different you know projects at different stages of development um so we can go okay this is what we've got if you like Mm. that there's more like this so it there's no guarantees in life, of course, but it will increase the odds that hopefully someone will pick you up and do something with it.
0: It's fascinating to hear because that and that's all come from the experiences you've had, um, all the mistakes I've made in the past. Well, <laughs> do you know what? And that's why we that's why we show up here as well because I often think that one of the best things that we can do as writers is we can learn from other people's mistakes. It's it's really great obviously to hear all of the kind of like the tips, things, the things that changed your life, the things that made you the writer you are today, but actually not going down that path that other people have gone and fallen down the same hole that they've gone on and then trying to climb out the hole yourself. I think that is incredibly valuable.
1: Well, you know, we, we've been doing this for nearly five years, five years next, next month, and next you, month, yeah. you, you haven't reached the tip of the iceberg of my mistakes. I mean, we're still <laughs> – got plenty
0: more where that came from. Don't you worry. <laughs> it actually would be quite an interesting episode to do, wouldn't it, about again, asking asking authors what some of the biggest mistakes they've made, their biggest learning moments. In fact, everyone can just dwell on this for a minute. Like if you think about in your own career, your own writing – Life. If you're listening to this now, which you obviously are because you can hear my voice, <laughs> but think about this. Like, think about of the things that you look back on as disasters in your life. Were they one of your greatest learning points? And I, I'm a big advocate. Like, there's always some value in everything, even if it was a complete disaster. Sometimes that can be more valuable. In fact, if you look at the statistics on very successful business people, the people who became uber successful. When you look at their history, there is usually a bankruptcy or three somewhere in their <laughs> path to that success. <laughs> it's very rare that someone goes from zero to hero. There's it's, it's the bankruptcies and the complete collapses that taught them everything they needed to know to then make it. So again, think about your first book that you're writing. If you think it's a complete disaster, it's possibly the stepping stone to that bestseller, which might be book two or three or six, whichever one it might be. Um, but too many people get despondent and they think, oh, you know, I, I've, I've messed up. It's, that's the end of it for me. But it's never, it's always just a new beginning, ultimately. so Failure is a great teacher. It is, absolutely. And talking about great teachers, we have an amazing guest on today's show, don't we, Mark? Tell us about Abby Silver. Uh, Abby Silver is a lawyer
1: by profession, and her first courtroom thriller featured the legal duo of Judith Burton and Constant Lamb. It's called The Pinocchio Brief, and it's published by Lightning Books in 2017 and was shortlisted for the Waverton Good Read Award. And the series has continued with The Aladdin Trial, The Cinderella Plan, The Rapunzel Act. Are you seeing a pattern here? I see and the latest book in the Burton and Lamb series is The Midas Game, which uh, delves into the world of online gaming and celebrity YouTubers. It's really great fun. Abby tells us about the research she did for this book, but we also discuss an article she recently wrote about why writers write and why it matters. And it's fascinating stuff.
0: Fantastic. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the lovely Abby Silver. Abby Silver, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today?
2: I'm very well. Thank you, Mark. And thanks so much for inviting me on. Oh, absolute pleasure. And we're here to talk about all
1: sorts of exciting stuff, not least your new book, The Midas Game, which is the latest book in the Burton and Lamb series featuring the experienced barrister Judith Burton and the young solicitor Constance Lamb. And this one, this is is of big interest to me because this features online gaming and a celebrity YouTuber. Tell us all about it.
2: Okay, so... um At the beginning of the Midas game, um, poor old Dr. Liz Sullivan um, is suddenly found dead in bed at the tender age of 43. And Liz has been a very dedicated doctor. Uh, She is a psychiatrist who um, particularly looked after patients, mostly young men, who were suffering from addiction to online gaming. And um, suspicion for uh, her death, for causing her death, falls on, as you've mentioned, a a young online YouTuber and celebrity gamer, Jaden J.D. Dodds, who happens to be her neighbour. And of course, our legal duo, um, Judith Burton, Constance Lamb, are parachuted in to defend J.D. uh, on what ends up being both a, a charge of rape and murder. Um, and I think the the story, it's very much in the tradition of, of the books which come before. So we've kind of got an investigation and then a dramatic courtroom scene um, and you end up finding out who, who done it. Um, but it was very much an opportunity for me to explore this whole world of online gaming, which I knew a little bit about um, from my own children who um, I have three boys and, and who have certainly Um, had some involvement in online gaming over the years particularly with a game called Fortnite uh, which Mm -hmm. was uh, sort of stealing all the headlines through 2018-2019. At one point I think 80 million people were playing it at any one time and if you remember there's that wonderful crazy dance that everybody was was doing. So um, it allowed me to explore this whole world and I, I do try and do it in a balanced way so not only do we have uh, JD and actually Judith, who for readers who know the books, Judith is, is incredibly traditional in her approach to everything, as a, as a contrast with Constance, who tends to be um much more modern. But even Judith tries her hand at gaming because she wants to know what this is all about. Um and I also have um a game designer, Luke, who um whose game his rather aggressive boss is pitching to the Olympic committee because there's this whole move for e-sports to join the Mm -hmm. Olympics. Um, And we also have uh, Tom, Liz's poor son, who himself aspires to being a competitive gamer. So I hope that through fiction, (laughs) I'm um, allowing people who perhaps don't know that much about gaming, or maybe they have people who game in their family and they're kind of worried about whether they spend too much time gaming. I'm exploring all of these issues, but in a fictional context.
1: I have to ask, Abby, did you play Fortnite and how well did you do
2: on it? (laughs) Um, I had a little go. I wasn't very good. Um, It's not... (sighs) I think if you don't grow up with these things, it's quite hard to come to them later. Or at least that's my excuse. Yeah. Um, I think you do. The problem really is you do have to devote the time mm. to be any good. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's not really one for me.
1: But they they do... These games are totally designed to trigger all those little addiction things going over in your brain, aren't they? Keep you coming back for more. I mean, I've I've not played Fortnite. I've seen the trailers for it, and I think if I was fourteen years old, I'd never leave it. I mean, this is one of the reasons I tend not to to do much gaming these days because I would. We've got a VR. We've got an Oculus VR helmet. I could happily live in there all day, but I have to <laughs> I have to, you know, just half an hour or an hour at a time or whatever. But it's um, yeah, it's it's a serious problem, no, I, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. It is. It is. And they are specifically designed. I watched this wonderful video. So so obviously I did a lot of research, which has gone into the book, um, but hopefully you won't kind of see it as research. (laughs) Um, But you could watch the lady who uh, was involved in the design of Fortnite talking online on YouTube about all the elements of the game and how they've been specifically designed um, to hold people's attention and to keep them playing. Because originally... Video games, if we can call them that, you, you know, you paid at the beginning for a game. Um, so the manufacturer recouped their money from the mm-hmm. purchase price and then they didn't actually care how long you played for. But now most of these games are being provided free. And so the manufacturer has to make their money somehow. And so the way they do it is often through these in-app purchases mm-hmm. or, or loot boxes or various things that you buy They're kind of null, but if you're going to do better in the game, you you have to buy them. And so Mm -hmm. it's um, what the manufacturer wants is to keep playing for as long as possible to maximise the opportunity of you actually buying all these things. Um, And you have all these behavioural psychologist kind of devices to keep you playing. So, for example, you may work up to a particular level, but if you stop playing, all the work that you've done will be lost and you'll drop back down. So there are all kinds of um, devices that are used. And the difficulty is that a lot of these things enhance what they call the user experience. Mm-hmm. So some of the ele- elements that make the game more addictive are the same elements that make it more fun. And as you say, they you get these um, dopamine Mm. Um, releases into the brain which give you this wonderful thrill and want to keep you playing but those are the same kind of of things that make you want to carry on so you've probably seen um, just this week the Chinese government have announced that they are limiting uh, the amount of time that children can play in China I think it's it's three hours a week and they're going to make as far as they can the manufacture as responsible for limiting the amount of time that the children play. Uh, and th- there's been a lot in the news about that. And, and the issue that we have, without strange from talking about a fictional side of things, um, <laughs> is that we don't regulate gaming in this country and actually have a big opportunity to do it with something called the Online Safety Bill, which uh, will become law in the next couple of years. But at the moment the whole gaming industry is not included in in that legislation so so nothing is actually going to be done formally um so the only thing that gaming companies have to do is they do have to put um, an age rating on their games but my experience is that that is largely ignored by kids who want to play oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. totally so that's kind of the serious the, <laughs> the serious side of things um but as i say i i do try in this book, and it, and I've done it in each of my other books, and each story covers a, a contemporary topical theme, and I always try to present things in a kind of balanced way mm. so that people can make their own mind up about, about the issues.
1: Because mm. this, this is the thing, I don't know if you've written about this before, but and you do focus on topical themes, moral grey areas, but you are also, as a writer, you're sharing your own personal fears and insights and thoughts and that's really important, isn't it?
2: Uh, I think it is. So I um, I penned an article recently for uh, Writing IE, which is a, an online magazine entitled Why I Write. And I also shared it with other writers afterwards to try and get some of their feedback because I'd actually often being asked things like where I write and how I write and you know are you a planner or a pantser and all those kind of questions but I'd never been asked why I write and such an easy question to answer um and I distilled it really down to kind of three elements and the first is the one that I think everybody probably agrees with and and you and I talked about this when we spoke at the, the London Book Fair um Uh, And this is it's this compulsion to write. Mm. So I think for me, the first element is that uh, it's that itch in the centre of your back that you can't quite reach or (laughs) the stone in your shoe or the grit in your eye or however you want to describe it. But you have all these ideas going on in your mind about a story you, you might want to write, but one of them really sticks and you can't get rid of it and you feel compelled to write that story um, and actually one person replied to me and i thought this was great and he said he actually felt that he, he had no reason to exist unless he was te- writing stories telling stories it was that right. that so much of it, it drove him so much um that he he couldn't exist without writing um But I think you've got to have more than that. You've got to want to communicate those stories. And you've got to have this desire, as you say, to share really personal stuff (laughs) with Mm. complete strangers. Um, And it may be because the story is set in a place that you know and love, or it may be that you have based the characters on people you know, or it may be, as you say, that they are voicing your own views. but that moment when you you know you you type the end and you finish your story, that's kind of only part of the, the battle. Um, and I I don't know how you feel you know with your own writing, but for me, the first time I share a story with somebody else, it's incredibly haunting, and it's and I don't like it very much because it's so personal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've breathed life into these characters, and you want people to. Identify with your characters, empathise with them, care about them, believe in them. Um, And you give so much of yourself away in that whole process. So I find it incredibly personal and I always worry before I share a story.
1: I was going to ask if you feel that it gets any easier because the and i don't think it does it certainly hasn't in my case because i think the first time you write something and it is a personal story and you put your head over the parapet and then you might get a snarky review online or someone doesn't get it or whatever and so the next time you write a story the second book the third book the fourth, and you know you've, the burton and lamb what are we five or six books now and it's you you start thinking Okay, I'm gonna to have to go through this again. Someone's gonna to have to not get it or misunderstand it or disagree with me. And it's um that can be quite a thing to deal with, can't it? Uh,
2: absolutely. Um, and I am someone who reads my reviews. I don't ignore my reviews because I actually think it's really important to get feedback on your writing. And obviously everybody's got the right to <laughs> to like or dislike what you write. You're not you're not gonna please everyone. And if you want to improve you need to know what people think um but yes uh it, it's it, you really have to be quite quite thick-skinned as a writer um and just believe in yourself and obviously you've got help because you've got your editor or you've got friends or other people who read your book and give you tips about what works and what doesn't work but um I, I agree it doesn't get any easier and also with Constance and judith so, So each one of my books can be read as a standalone because each one focuses on a different case. Um, But there's obviously the umbrella kind of arc of the story of those two um, professional women who meet in the first book and then their relationship develops through each of the, so five books so far, um, each of the five. And um, I kind of feel a responsibility as well to them and to the readers to develop their characters, their friendship in a sensible and plausible way. And and so actually as time goes on, I feel more responsibility and I don't want to let people down with the stories that I'm writing. Um, And I don't, I've deliberately not given Constance and Judith a huge amount of baggage. Mm. Um, I wanted to focus very much on them being, good at their jobs and and professional but obviously little things creep in. Um, Another thing that I've done through the stories is some of my suspects have been quite vulnerable people and I deliberately wanted to bring that in so in the first book the Pinocchio Brief where our kind of topical theme is all to do with lie detecting software being used in a court process to read your face Um, and see if you're telling the truth or not, by the way you move your face. So there the defendant is um, a 15-year-old boy who is rather socially inept. Uh, And obviously we look at how the justice system treats treats him. Mm. Uh, And as another example in the Aladdin trial, which is the second story, uh, the defendant is a Syrian refugee who has come to this country in difficult circumstances. And so obviously you have somebody being put on trial whose first language isn't English. Um, and so there's all kinds of things that I try to explore in my stories through these characters. And, and certainly with with Ahmed Kabani in, in the Aladdin trial, influenced by somebody I had met. And so it was really important to me to tell his story mm-hmm. in an appropriate way and a way that he would approve of. Um, so, so, yes, lot, lots of weight on our shoulders, I think, as writers, when, when we tell our stories that maybe people don't always appreciate.
1: Well, it's interesting because we had Steve Kavanagh on a few weeks ago, and he was talking about the similar thing—that responsibility to the reader uh, in terms of you know delivering a great story and, and entertaining them and thrilling them, but also making a connection with them, and that could be through telling a story of the dispossessed, of of people who don't normally have a voice, and that's you know we we talk about putting a head over the parapet and getting brickbats and that kind of thing, but the the reason why I think what writers do is important is when you make that connection with the reader, when someone says to you, this really meant something to me. And that, that is the best feeling in the world, isn't
2: it? It, Oh, it is. Absolutely. Um, I had a lady contact me the other day, Facebook, um, quite an elderly lady. And she just particularly, she'd read one of my books and she just wanted to tell me how much she'd enjoyed it. And, (sighs) you know, I spent the whole day (laughs) totally elated that somebody would not only read the book and enjoy it, but take the time to write and tell me it's incredibly important and it really does make it worthwhile um absolutely i agree
1: i think yeah i have to extrapolate from that as well for because you and i will have read books that absolutely moved us to tears to laughter to thrills or whatever and then we put the book down and move on to the next one we don't contact the author and i think for every one person like that lady who got in touch with you there's probably 10 12 20 others or more who you know were similarly thrilled but you know just Never think to to contact the author, and I can assure you, listeners, this makes our blimming week. It really, really does. <laughs> so, if you ever, if you ever want to drop an author, any any author at all, just drop them a line, let them know what you thought of their book. It, it 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 really, really makes a huge, huge difference, doesn't it?
2: it, it even the really famous ones, I think. You know, yeah. I think you never you're never too famous to appreciate uh, those kind of comments. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely, most definitely. So, what's coming next for you, Abby? What's What's the Are we going to be seeing more adventures in the Burton and Lamb series?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, I have just finished the the first draft of book six. Um, okay. So that's with the editor and with a view to coming out next year. Um, but obviously, things are so uncertain at the moment in the in the publishing industry. But hopefully, it'll it'll come out kind of spring summer next year. And it's uh, another topical, um, topical theme, uh, which I think people will be able to identify with, uh, less, less, less technology, not so much techie this time, because obviously I've written a few books that have had a kind of technological aspect to them. Um, but something that we can, or that we all know and love, <laughs> let's put it that way.
1: Brilliant. Can't wait. Actually, I'll lo- I'd love to talk to you because, you know, the Midas game has launched as COVID is still here. It's still with us. Uh, but bookshops are open. How has this launch been for you compared to pre-COVID? Uh, because it's during lockdown, it was kind of, well, I have to do everything on Zoom. I have to do everything online, whatever. But now there are, I mean, we're seeing festivals pop up. We did the London Book Fair online, you know, things like that. How the, has the launch of the Midas game been different to, to previous books?
2: Well, I mean, it was all done online. Um, and that's not, it's a shame because I think it's wonderful to have a live launch and actually have people at your launch and be able to talk to them and, you know, and they hold the book in their hands and you hand the book to them and all those kind of things. Um, which are all part of, of the whole launch process. So I've had to do the whole process. Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that what we might do, because it was the same with my, my fourth book, The Rapunzel Act, was, was kind of delayed from last year and came out at the beginning of this year. So we had a virtual launch then as well. So we're thinking that we might try and do, either do something later in the year where with the two books together, where we mm. can actually have have people in a bookshop, which would be lovely. Um, or I suppose we could kind of do it all joint the when, when the new book comes out. But I don't think you can replicate that in-person experience. I mean, obviously people have tried very hard with um, with, with launches and I did a Facebook Live launch and actually my, my family did help me out with that because same here, same um, I think here. talking the whole time. <laughs> The, the whole time on your own. Um, it, it's, it's quite daunting and it's it's not all that much fun for listeners either. So we tried to do kind of Q&A and, and mix it up a bit and allow people to be a bit more interactive. Um, so, yes, I suppose I've learned lots of new skills. That's a positive <laughs> way of thinking of it. But I don't think you can substitute really the, the, the fun of, of sharing your book with people in person. Mm. Uh, so I'm really waiting for an opportunity for that to happen
1: soon you and me both well I hope to meet you again in person sometime in the future Abby but uh, in the meantime thank that you so much lovely. for speaking to us today
0: and speak to you again soon lovely
2: thanks so much for
0: having me oh my gosh I mean any parent listening to that with kids approximately between the ages of one and 25 <laughs> <laughs> will relate yeah, oh yeah. will relate Um, it's, it's a strange old world out there, isn't it? And, um, I, I, for one, uh, put my hand up. I am one of those parents that, that looks at computer games. And I think back to the early days when I first started gaming. Rock, it was called a ZX Spectrum, and you used, to, <laughs> you used to have to wait for like ten minutes to just load the loading screen of the game, yeah. and then it would crash. Adjusting because the s- volume on your little cassette player, yeah, because because the, <laughs> the tape, the tape would like you'd get there, you like Jet Set Willy, and then mm. you get the you get the or uh, Manic Miner, and you get that page load, and then it would then the tape would get caught up in your tape recorder, and you'd be like screaming and yelling. I mean. But How they were just as changed. addictive. Those games were just, just as apps, addictive. If not more so.
1: Yeah, you'd close your eyes at night and you'd see the game playing oh, out, playing I out on nightmares. your eyelids.
0: <laughs> I remember, Mark, the very first. Okay, so I got the ZX Spectrum when I was 12 years of age for Christmas. I will never, never nice. forget this date. And my dad bought me Space Invaders hmm. and Hungry Horus. Like anyone with this that expression is going to be like, "Oh my god, Hungry Horus. It was the first. I think there were only two games you could actually buy Ooh. with this computer. For people who have not heard of the Spectrum, because um, it wasn't—I don't think it was huge in the state. It was a very. It was a the British, greatest British invention since the Spitfire. It was Sir <laughs> so Sinclair, right? So, but but it was the very first kind of home, um, kind of I guess. Mass, 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 mass kind of home computer. There was BBC and there's Commodore 64, but it's about Spectrum, it's price point. And I, I do remember playing Space Invaders uh, for about 16 hours. And I remember going to bed that night and I literally closed my eyes, and all I could see were giant space invaders, <laughs> like coming. T- and lip, it was lip, ah, lip, it, lip, it was lip, so lip, freaky, <laughs> it was so weird. It was like a projected version of what I'd been looking at on a, TV, a little TV screen, like cinema screen space invaders. And it was it was terrifying. <laughs> I couldn't sleep. We had a um,
1: we had a fire damaged BBC B let me explain oh, um, my dad my dad was a football referee and he was secretary of the local refs association so when he took on that role they gave him the computer uh and it'd been in someone else's house and they'd had a fire and there was soot on the motherboard or something and we we had no idea how to fix it so it'd be one of these things where you'd be playing a game and then suddenly the screen would start blocking up and then you go And then it would clear up and then you could be able to carry on playing. But that's where I learned to type because dad used to do a newsletter. They had like a monthly newsletter and dad had to do the introduction and he would scribble it down and I would type it up. And by typing up all of that, and I I think we used to do the whole newsletter. So I used to that's how I learned to touch type. And that's, um, that's and then I started writing stories terrible terrible knockoffs of american tv shows
0: on uh, on the bbc on B. the bbc with a big yeah. floppy drive
1: yeah yeah Remember? yeah massive massive floppy, a massive drive. floppy
0: yeah. drive yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, i do so i mean we're going to talk a little bit more about about how it's, writing this is a writing
1: how, podcast <laughs> i know but see i want to go retro now i just want to spend like
0: i want to go back to the 80s but um one of the things that that i that in terms of writing where computers really helped me in in my younger youth was mm. i i did i i really loved adventure games you remember the games a bit like mm. choose your own adventure it was like you know i remember getting the hobbit on the spectrum um and it would like you know oh the graphics were just awful but it was brilliant go 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 google the hobbit zx spectrum and look at the, the graphics but um it, but it was all typing it was like you know say blah or yeah. east west north and then i actually designed my own computer game when i was 14 uh called the, based on the coral island the book Really, and i sent it to branson because he had virgin <laughs> games this is kind of one of the crazy things i did i and i actually got a letter back from richard branson it was from him in like you know signed by a secretary um <laughs> but i went through all the form letters i tried all of the micro this and all these different spectrum companies but actually To design that game, I had to write the entire, like, it was almost like the script of Mm. what happened. So I read the book and then I kind of broke it all down and I then added in my own ideas and chucked a few kind of curveballs in and actually created this computer game. And, you know, for somebody that, you know, at that time we didn't, we didn't have computers at school. We didn't, we didn't really learn to type it was it was just something that we did at home and i think that was a big part of my interest how my interest in writing grew as well so there's obviously there's a lot of negative stuff around computer games today but i think there's a lot of value as well which we miss it's, typing and it's reading a t- it's
1: a tool like any other you can use a hammer to knock in a nail or bash someone's brains in you know so Absolutely. It's, um, yeah. it's a tool like it but there are that you know you do worry with kids being exploited but the other thing is my kids are digital natives. They've never known anything else. They what can negotiate they? this stuff a lot more easily. They're well aware of all the scams and everything, you know.
0: Absolutely. But they also don't have the... the we, we're probably the last generation, I'm guessing. Like, what well, we're in our 40s, right? So computers kind of came in during our yeah. teen years, and the internet happened in our early 20s. And... So we get to sit here and go, Oh, well, we remember back Whenever when I was a, lad. a lad, Back it was when it was all fields. We used to have to turn our computer to turn it on. And it's like I think what's fascinating is we forget as oldie oldy folks now, like that like you say Kids are playing with iPads in, in supermarkets, you know, I, 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 like, like literally like babies I see on iPads. And it's just part of their life. Um, but from a writing perspective, my my big concern, my big concern is um, I, I always ask myself how much of people's youth is being spent not writing because of the incredible allure of computer games and how incredibly... Um, I mean, addictive, absolutely, because they're they're designed to be that way. Because that's you know, especially with subscription-based games now, which they need people playing, you know, keep them hooked. As Abby was saying, Um, I wonder how that's going to affect the authors of tomorrow or even today. Like you know, because a lot of kids would spend a lot of time writing books when there wasn't a computer in the house. I mean, you you could. I mean, there's there's the
1: argument of we learn to fire up our imaginations when we're bored. And I had lots of times when I was a kid when I was bored and I'd go off and draw something or write something or whatever. Um, but also, I was inspired. I mean, pe- the big thing when I was a kid was video games, uh, video VHS rentals, you know, and video nasties and stuff like that. And, you know, I'd spend hours watching those, but they inspired me as well. And you get games like Red Dead Redemption and The Last of Us where the writing is so Oh, it's fly.
0: Hollywood, right?
1: Yeah. Really, yeah. really, really good stuff. And And I know my son... You know, will he'll get as excited about those as any any movie? You know, and the for him the story is as much a part of the thing as 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 the gameplay. Yeah. And um, you know, we uh, we interviewed James Swallow on the podcast who writes for games, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that if you want to go back and listen to him. And you know, James uh, he writes novels as well as games, so he's very much into that world. And I think there is a big blurring of um, you know the writing for fiction and writing for games and what have you. And it's all, and I, I, and, you know, we're talking about VR. I've got an Oculus VR helmet and that I'm, I'm thinking about how you can write for that. And, um, you know, the, and the possibilities there and that that kind of interactive storytelling. So I think it's evolving, it's changing, it's becoming a bit different. I mean, VR storytelling is, varies wildly. It can be be games like, you know, The Last of Us or Equivalents or whatever, or it can be you just sit there and let the story unfold before you. There's there's a couple of wonderful um, stories I've watched on VR where the characters are about this big, and um, for audio listeners, about the size of an apple, and they're walking around my head, going downstairs, getting in a little boat, going off to the horizon. Then the horizon comes to you and you follow them. And it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But it's... um, yeah, it's, it's evolving. It's becoming something it amazing.
0: In some ways, you could say there's possibly going to be more opportunities for writers Ooh. than ever before moving forward. And people that are immersed in these technologies will obviously see those opportunities. And I think that it's, it's also really interesting as well to see how <laughs> gaming and – I mean, here's a great example. My, my youngest, who's 12, has recently got into anime loves anime and she's like just and she's found she said dad this anime series on netflix has got 67 seasons i'm like oh my god (laughs) there goes the summer right i'm like 60 i'm like what they two minutes each the episodes no they're like they're like 30 minutes i'm like what that's like you'll be like 16 before you finish that and but what then happened is she really got into anime and i was like really you know i was thinking oh i'm spending too much time on 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 watching tv and, and video games and was kind of looking at anime stuff online as well but then something magical happened she was watching a TikTok video, and somebody said, "Oh, you have got to check out this amazing story that someone's put on Wattpad fan fiction mm. about one of her favorite anime series." And she said, "Dad, can I can I borrow your iPad and um, and I want to try this? A thing called Wattpad." And I thought, "I know Wattpad! Like, mm. oh, this is great." And got a set up on Wattpad. She has not stopped reading anime stories on Wattpad for literally the last month. She has right. read more in the last month than she has probably read in her entire life. And huh. that, came, that came from watching a Netflix series to watching you know, YouTube, TikTok, and now all she wants to do is read it's all
1: come around full circle we started the show talking about turning books into shows and now people are turning shows into books with fan fiction it's all one big melange I know. this is it you know this is the world we live in now and that's that's amazing that's great and it's, Isn't it great? it's storytelling in in all its wonderful glorious
0: forms and, and what's happening now she said to me just yesterday dad i want to create an account on wattpad because i want to put up <gasps> A story that i'm writing and wow. I like, oh, oh my goodness so in some ways you know we get very fearful of all these new technologies mm-hmm. but i do think that at the core what one thing is that in the center of the universe of all of this it's always writing isn't it yeah it's always writing writing is the core but secondly i do believe that kids that have a fascination with reading and writing always revert back to that core eventually they'll find their way back in it might be and who knows because of all of the extra experience they've had playing video games watching shows um you know even watching youtube and tiktok things like that that just in some way oh stimulates their creativity beyond something that i've never seen really in my lifetime it's quite mind-blowing no, absolutely right. That said, Candy
1: Crush is the work of Satan. So, Well, it is.
0: Ahead. And do you know why? Do you know why? Because they have, here's a little known fact, they have about 40 plus, or allegedly, okay, I've read this, uh, 40 plus PhD uh, psychologists who are watching every all the data that comes in from all the millions of people. And there's a thing called the sweet spot. Now, we should talk about this in writing because the same thing exists mm. in writing, which but it's not really been defined yet but there's a sweet spot in gaming and the sweet spot in gaming is the level is just hard enough to keep you challenged, yeah, but not too hard that you give up. And it's a tiny little spot right in the middle of that. Like, and mm. that's, that is the kind of, I mean, it's the addiction point, right? Cause it's the bit that keeps you going and wants you, but at the back end of that, they're constantly tweaking that point based on all of the millions of players' data that's flooding into the central server. It's quite mind-blowing when you find out what goes on behind the scenes of these online games.
1: It did. It did. When I was um, talking to Abby, a question popped into my mind, and I, I don't think I have an answer for this. And it's a cynical one, but if gaming is so addictive, how do we as writers exploit that same addiction? Is there something we could? Is it? Is it the Dan Brown cliffhanger thing? where every chapter ends with a, oh, what next? Oh, what next? You know, or is that exhausting or whatever, but you know, is that, uh, it's
0: a massive question, isn't it? And actually yeah. I, I, I've been fascinated by this question for a number of years. And I came across a Ted talk. If anyone's interested in this, I really recommend going and check out a Ted talk by Jane McGonigal. She's written a book called reality is broken. And she actually, the whole, all of her studies, she's an academic that that focuses on computer gaming and, The effect that it has on the world and and the the the, you know the the younger generations and her whole kind of take on this and her ted talk which is fascinating says you know if we could even just pull five percent of what makes computer games so brilliant that keeps people so engaged if we could even grab five percent of that and turn it round so that people playing games are in some way changing the world or helping the world Mm -hmm. in some way. So it wasn't pure entertainment. And it it made me then think of that bigger question with writing. And it's like, well, what can we learn through how computer games are designed and how they're the most, I mean, I think the most engaging form of entertainment for anyone who's into gaming versus even Netflix and a great book. How can we take a bit of that and understand it so that we can drop some of that magic into the novel i think that is almost like the elixir the holy grail really of, of the next level i'm sure someone out there has probably analyzed it um and try to kind of put a model around it like the hero's journey for some in some ways but it's such a great question isn't it
1: mm,
0: no it really is it really is i think it's 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 that engagement
1: it's people, keeping people on the hook i mean you are essentially doing the same kind of things but because I have looked into writing for games and I was talking to uh, a games writer about this and he said that the problem is so much of game storytelling is driven by technological advances. So the people who make the games, they will say, okay, we figured out a way to make a, a rain fall in a certain way and look really good on screen or we figured out a way of moving that's new and different. So let's do a story about that and they get their writing teams on, and that's where it starts. Whereas I was thinking, oh, maybe I could pitch this story, and, it, and that's not how it works. Mm. It's all driven by technological advances and new ways of doing things. And then they figure, well, let's hang a story on that. What have we got? I don't know. Let's have a shoot em up or whatever, you know. So Yeah, and it's it also
0: works. it's also interaction as well, because when we write a book, we're very much writing it linearly, and kind of like, mm. you know, even though if we're jumping around, you know, like I read um, – all the light you cannot see where you're jumping around from, you know, nineteen forty-two yeah, yeah. to nineteen thirty-eight to nineteen forty-five. I mean, there's it's start, middle, and end ultimately. But the difference with gaming is you've got that interaction of the user who actually decides. It's like a choose your own adventure. And they've started doing it with Netflix, suddenly, they, where they start having these interactive Netflix Minecraft yeah, black, shows and the Black Mirror show. The Black uh, Mirror. And then yeah. there was the one with um the Bushcraft chap. Um, not Ray, is? But no, the no. other guy, the younger chap. Oh, okay. Oh, I should know his name, but um, Bear, Grylls, Bear Grylls. Oh, Bear Grylls. Um, you know, where you choose what he does next. Um, so it's a different kind of art. It, it's writing, but it's a different kind of art form. It's about um, taking, it is a choose your own adventure. You have to then start splitting everything and it, you have all these different conclusions. And that can be incredibly fun, but it can also be incredibly challenging to do mm. um, because you've also got a second guess it's almost like you've got all these different options and each option has to be as intriguing as the other. And so you've got more playing off each other. But, you know, for anyone who's ever done, a, you know, try to choose your own adventure or it's actually a really great way of plotting a novel. In some ways, you can write your book as a bit of a choose your own adventure and then find what you believe to be the, the golden thread that goes all the way through from start to finish and then get disregard the rest. I mean, mm. what about that as a model, Mark? That's an interesting idea. I mean, Choose your own adventure book. It, it's kind of the way... I
1: mean, I mentioned it before the way that Netflix work, which is they will explore every story option. They will do Oh, it's, Pixar. You know,
0: yeah, Pixar. It's Pixar, yeah. They go which, down every thread,
1: don't they? What did I say? You said Netflix, but. Oh, gosh. can't That's Netflix right. on the brain. Yes, Pixar. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, they explore every avenue, you know. So yeah. it's,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, it's just, you know, well, show let's, let's
0: brand it today. Let's brand the model today <laughs> as a write your own adventure, write your own adventure writing model as coined by the bestseller experiment. So if you, if you, if you want to try that, let us know how it goes, because I think it's actually, I think it's in some ways quite freeing to think about writing in that way, because people are always trying to come up with an idea or trying to think of something. And it's like, no, just allow yourself to think of tons of different options. Just, just mm. play with it, have fun, enjoy the process, <laughs> and then just cross off all the rubbish stuff and look for that thread that runs through. That is sound. maybe a much more freeing way of writing, but make um, it yeah, so if you want simple. to try that, <laughs> I know, I know, right? Such an easy life when you, yeah, mm, brilliant stuff. But it's, it's really, it's really important. Um, you know, that, that, the article that um, Abby wrote was really fascinating in terms of, say, she was talking about how she can't exist without writing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is, this is, um, Something I definitely relate to, you know, uh, and it is—it's something we were talking about in our post-podcast chat. This, this, the—we're having because um, talking about Sarah Denzel, and Sarah Denzel was talking about how feedback inspired her and, and gave her confidence. And we were talking about the difference between feedback and validation. You know, the, the constructive feedback can help you, you know, write and improve your story, but also that external validation from, say. An agent or another writer or whatever, just saying to you, you can do this, you know, and and then you have to start asking, well, why? Why am I doing this? Am I just doing this for my own glory? Am I just doing this to make myself look good, or are we making some sort of difference in the world? Um, and this idea that. You know, it's lovely to get reviews and very often these days, you know, we have launch teams or we know that our first couple of reviews are going to be from mates or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's that first review you get from a stranger. You that's know, huge. someone yeah. someone who's shelled out money and you have no idea who they are, and they've read your book and they don't hate you. That <laughs> for me is is the magical review. That's the one that's like, oh, I you know, something I've written has had an effect on someone else. It may, it's probably only going to be a temporary effect. It may be something that, you know, in a few years from now, they will still be thinking of the book. Or it's like when I did um uh a, a Comic-Con up the road from here and, and an 11-year-old boy came up, saw Robot Over. You, you wrote Robot Overlords? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my second
0: favourite film. That, for me, job done. Yeah. You know, absolutely job done. It's a huge moment, actually, in writers' lives. I don't think anyone who's kind of the other side of it who hasn't written the book yet. And I know there's loads and loads of us, you know, loads of people out there that are still kind of, you know, struggling to finish their book or struggling to find the right idea, um, not believing they're good enough. But it really, validation is so huge and and it is a really important moment. Um, It's a crossing of a threshold, I think, where we kind of move from a writer who um, is writing... Uh, for for a dream like a belief a a desire to want to get their work out there um and contribute and be a part of this incredible journey you know to be a part of the history of writing you write a book you become part of the the history of writing i mean regardless of how well it it does and i think that moment like you say when somebody you don't know and somebody who doesn't know you Mm. as well they've taken a complete punt on you they're like who's Mm. this who's this mark stay bloke who's this mark oliver bloke or whatever they they weren't maybe brought back to reality not even maybe didn't even know the podcast seeing that they enjoyed the book kind of makes it all worthwhile yeah. in some ways it's almost that the, the, because we always know there's two types of feedback we get or validation we get from our nearest and dearest and that is go get a proper job that's the first kind of validation or the second kind of validation is oh it's amazing and and you know they haven't even read it um so you know it's a complete extreme so that's why that 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 that's the first genuine or it's the first review you can trust, I guess, in some ways. That yeah. Somebody genuinely has given you a review, you don't know who they are from Adam, and they loved it. You're off from you're off and running. You're at the races.
1: Yeah. It's I think fuel in a tank. I think there's a reason why Amazon singles out the reviews that have been they've called verif you know, have a verified purchase. So someone's actually bought that and they they sort of get more attention than than the unverified ones you know that's um, absolutely those things yeah. have a value
0: to other readers as well
2: but yeah it's
1: it's some um, it's it, it made for a really interesting conversation on the academy today
0: it does yeah and i'm sure that validate that verification that amazon put in i'm sure in their magic algorithm those reviews are weighted much higher oh yeah right yeah, yeah, because yeah. The, no question so so they are real gold dust as well for uh Um, you know for writers so so anyone who's almost there if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you're very very close to getting your first book on amazon we want to wish you all the best of luck in in firstly getting it out there and then secondly tell us about that moment tell us about the moment when you got that first unknown reviewer who gave you uh, a lovely review and uh, maybe send it to us and we can read it out on the Mm, show that'd be brilliant Mm. Excellent stuff. So, Mr. Stay, um, let's jump to wins today and uh, what's been happening in the writing world. We want to celebrate your successes, folks. Yeah, this is
1: fantastic. And on the Academy, Osman Hanif, this is brilliant. Uh, he got a short story accepted into a literary journal in Pakistan called the Aleph Review. And he's going to have a bit of coverage in a regional paper in India. So, big congrats there, Osman. Um, Amazing. It, If you're interested in the literary scene in Pakistan, I spoke to an author called Aves Khan, uh, who we've had on the podcast before on a deep dive. He was just starting out. And he had an interview the other day which said, this is the most important writer in the world today. So I thought, let's get him back on the podcast. I had a great chat (laughs) with Aves. Uh, So that's coming in uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, Also on the Academy, uh, Sylvia Neiderberger. Now, here we go. Here we go. Sylvia says, okay, I got a rejection... But they said it was poignant and that they hope that it will find a home somewhere else. Another recent rejection said they just did not have enough space for it. I'm counting both of these as wins. And they definitely are. You've got skin Games. Absolutely. Game, so well, it's
0: that, that. I mean, how about that's a rejection, but it's a validation at the same time, isn't it? Yep. Absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah, exactly
1: what we're talking about. Um, Laura, Laura Shepard, who's uh, on the BXP team on Facebook, um, she said, uh, hi, everyone, As because we have a weekly roundup on both on the Academy and in the bestseller experiment group and buried, you know, you people, people say, you know, I've done this this week. I've done this just us being accountable to each other. So Laura Shepard says, as I coyly alluded to in this week's accountability thread. I've got myself an agent. Uh, it really doesn't feel real, but I'm over the moon. Uh, and, cause she did put this in. I said, this deserves its own host laura put it up there as uh, she says gears are now grinding into action on the edits i uh, also want to say a massive thank you to everyone in the group who helped me with my agent pitch when i posted it on here invaluable a special thanks goes to angela nurse who has had to put up with my bleating throughout the first draft editing and submission uh, process all the while publishing her own wonderful tartan noir series and big thanks to the two marks for making the podcast and hope Hosting this wonderful group, I'll keep you posted. Laura, we've got everything wow. crossed for you. That's congratulations, Laura! Amazing, delighted love, love, it, brilliant, love brilliant, it brilliant um uh zach erlocker who got another patreon supporter zach uh old friend of the podcast uh he says while i'm waiting for the final copy edit and artwork for my novel the man from middlework i've mocked up some covers could not have done it without the weekly motivation from the bestseller experiment i'm going to put a tweet a, a link to this in the show notes because this is a brilliant tweet because he's he's basically he hasn't got the cover up for it yet but he's been he's done four different mock-ups one looks like a penguin paperback One looks like pan thriller from the 70s one looks like an old pulp fiction thing from uh like the 50s and one is an old Ballantine paperback cover they look absolutely brilliant i mean i know mr d you've always been going talking about you know maybe do the cover first and let that inspire you and i think
0: that's what uh zach has done here fantastic yeah get your get your cover cover mock-up done as your inspiration when you're sitting down to all those days of writing so you can actually see what you're going to be creating i think it's brilliant that's great zach and last
1: but by no means least we have had a note from emmanuela decanor uh and she says i know i'm preaching to the choir but this 200 word a day thing i haven't written every day but at least three days a week. And now I have 80,000 words of my finished work in progress. I sort of can't believe it. I'm a single mum. My first novel, uh, when my daughter was little, took me so many years. I'm actually embarrassed to say this one was nine months. Nerf. nine. Now for the edits, but I don't think there will be nine months. Thank you, Marks, for this great idea. Emanuela, huge, huge congratulations to you. That is absolutely brilliant.
0: That's such a brilliant story as well. And this is the whole reason the 200 word challenge like every anyone can do anyone can do it anyone can do it um you know, sing a single mum who's you know in nine months has created that it just works brilliant thank <laughs> you so much for that and and just to remind people if you if you still haven't heard it tried it get on to the 200 word challenge it's 200 word you stick your email in and you start banking your words from today see how many streaks you can get in a row and like emmanuel in, in nine months you too could have
1: 80,000
0: words. It's just absolutely Mm -hmm. bonkers. Love it. Absolutely brilliant. Well, Mr. State, it's been an absolute pleasure today. I know there's so much, and you are the best listeners. Um, You, I mean, we do this so that we can hear your stories and continue being inspired by you because it's just this incredible community of people who are willing to dream, dare to dream, willing to be vulnerable. You know, tell us your dream, declare your dream to us, but Get writing. Get those 200 words. No more excuses, folks. No more excuses. We're all going to be busy for the rest of our lives. I don't know if you know that, Mark, but we are. We're all going to be really busy for the rest of our lives. I'm going to be busy on my deathbed organizing. (laughs) Oh, I've got to sort this and that. I'm going to be busy. It never ends. Don't ever use it as an excuse. (laughs) Squeeze. I know, but squeeze it in. Squeeze it in. 200 words and just make it happen because it's never going to change. When is our life ever going to get less busy than it is today? Just look at you, just look at anyone who's retired. Ask them how busy their life is right now. It's busy. So 200wordchallenge.com, do it. I'm going to start yelling on the podcast, Mark. Oh, you've started. I'll be like Bob Geldof. I'll be like Bob Geldof. <laughs> 200wordchallenge.com. <laughs> Send us your words. Um, so, yes, if you'd folks, like to sorry,
1: just, uh, <laughs> leave a review on your podcatcher of choice, please do so. Uh, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you've got writer friends that you think would be helped by Mr. D's yelling or any of the advice you've <laughs> heard on the podcast today, do, do send them uh, send them in our direction. Uh, we're on social media. Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at BestsellerXP.
0: Awesome. And if you would like to receive a weekly email reminding you of our latest new interview and what you'll learn from it, go and sign up to our newsletter. It's on the website, bestsellerexperiment.com. Click on the newsletter tab in the navigation and we will send you a weekly update whenever we've got a new, a new interview out there, which uh, is, is kind of useful to know because it's sometimes hard to keep up, isn't it, Mark, really, with all of the crazy things going on in the land of BXP. I struggle. Yeah, busy. No, I do busy. as well, right? And we're, we're <laughs> presenting it. We are busy, yes. We don't have enough time, do we, Mark? um but anyway, have a fantastic week, everyone. Have your best week ever. Go out there and make it happen. Um, write your up best again. words. <laughs> he's, he's off. We better finish this, Mark, before yeah, I let's start. Let's go. <laughs> oh, Testosterone's down. I don't know what's going on. Right, Mark? I'm going to go and lie down, take some Valium. And write my 200 words. You do that. So it's a goodbye (laughs) from a very calm... (laughs) Right. From a very calm Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark
1: 2. I'm scared.
0: (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs)